Alright, and we're recording. Um, hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Empathic Futures Lab, the show about designing human-focused futures for the environments we live in. I'm Chris. And I'm Christian. And today we have, um, well, we'll be discussing another episode, or another chapter of Kevin Kelly's The Inevitable, Understanding 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. Um, this is what, the third chapter that we've talked about, so uh, previously, what, what did we, what did we talk, uh, maybe it doesn't matter. Well, this time, this time we're talking about filtering. Um, yeah. So basically the idea behind filtering is that we're, we're collecting so much data and we're producing so much content that no matter how hard we try, we will never be able to consume all of it, right? We only have 24 hours a day, maximum of amount of attention to give something. Um, and we can divide that up into like, you know, however much we want, depending on how distracted we are and, and whatnot. But the basic premise is we can't spend all our attention on everything. There's just too much stuff out there. So how do we, how do we get around that? We filter it. How do we filter that? Uh, there are a number of ways to go about filtering that. Um, and that sort of gets into this whole idea of, um, you know, personalized ecosystems of, of content that we're all receiving. And, and how do we receive that? Is it all algorithms? Is it all coming from friends and people we know? Is it influencers, um, you know, that, you know, are paid by companies to brand or just kind of influence people with their own brand and, and what they choose? Um, and, and it kind of it kind of builds from there. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, all right, so I mean, maybe we just jump right into it then um, and, and continue with this conversation. We probably should have recorded a little bit of this already. Um, but Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got in a bit of an argument right before a discussion, I guess we could say, right before... Uh, we started the podcast right now and figured that we should just we should just maybe go with it. Um, and I guess how did we get onto Uber and Lyft? Well, you had brought up this idea of like uh, as as so so Kelly brings up this idea that or this sort of economic I don't know phenomenon that as technology advances it tends to push the cost of some object any object every object down towards zero towards some asymptote above zero right mm-hmm. some approaches zero approaches whatever um so so christian had brought up uh the question of well if if technology brings us towards zero if if the value is tending towards zero what's the point of advertising right like why why would you be trying to like advertise your product if the value is zero and you're not making any money off of it um, right and 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 brings that up the, go ahead yeah the idea was that you suggest that as as you approach as you, as your commodity approaches zero um at least for advertising i guess and make you know correct me correct me here because i'm probably going to misstate this that you know what becomes important is what becomes most important is our attention and is there a possibility in which we can charge companies for our attention um, instead of us so we charge so we charge the company directly instead of an intermediary right in yeah. terms of advertisement yeah so if they're just paying us to look at their stuff I guess what's the if that if that happens for everything what's the value of anything does that make any sense at all? Yeah, no, it, it definitely makes sense. I think, you know, what we had argued first was uh, the step before that being like, what, if there's no value in everything, what's the point of advertising, right? And the point of advertising is not maybe to sell the, the product, but it's to sell the brand or the experience of that brand, right? And right. that's how we'd gotten onto Uber versus Lyft, because like Uber and Lyft are essentially the same product, but we both, you know, we both use Lyft. Not that this is like a Lyft commercial, but we both use Lyft. Um, right and and and, and 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 you know and very very superficial reasons i just think that lyft looks nicer in the app and i think that uber was stupid with their logo design at one point and 
And so now I use Lyft because it just looks nicer, and I think that their advertising looks better. And I, the same people that drive an Uber drive a Lyft. So what's the difference anyway? Well, not all the same people, right? I, I've had this much. conversation with Lyft drivers because they ask me these things, and you know they probably ask many people like, or maybe it's just one guy who started this conversation. I've had this conversation with multiple drivers since then because of this one guy. Um, but I was driving in Chicago with my girlfriend. Um, or riding, I guess. And and he asks, like, do you guys use Uber or Lyft? And we got in this whole conversation about how he thinks Lyft has better quality customers. And I'm like, I think Lyft has better quality drivers and, and, and so on. So I, I, maybe I'm, like, super biased based on someone a few years back telling me that Lyft is better. But Well, I think, see, Uber and Lyft are the same product. They're selling the same thing. And... There's no, I don't think there's any loyalty, really. No, I, I'm extremely loyal to Lyft. I haven't used Uber in, probably, I haven't used Uber since I moved to Milwaukee. Okay, but why, for me, pers- for me, I have no loyalty to one or the other, right? There's, there's no, I don't have any particular experience in a Lyft that, you know, I haven't had a similar experience or better or worse in an Uber, right? Yeah. And... Yeah, you still use Lyft, so... Because it looks nicer, like if that still counts as excelling an experience. If, if there's anything like so superficial, I could tip the scales. I would, I have no brand loyalty to it, and so I guess my question is, like, I don't feel like the experience is that different enough to actually induce any loyalty. Whereas if you look at something like Amazon versus Walmart, right, when you have to filter which one of these you're going to go to, which one you're going to use. I'm gonna use an Amazon subscription service because I get a lot of stuff with it. I get I get an increased value in experience. Well, I mean, I think you could argue that Lyft is slightly better, right? Because I've talked, I've talked to drivers and they've heard, and this is secondhand knowledge, but they've heard stories of people getting rejected from Lyft and becoming drivers at Uber, right? Um, Which, so maybe it is slightly different. So maybe, so then maybe what it is. But I, I don't know that I've seen that anywhere. You think Lyft would say that? Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. It's, yeah. But just yeah. just the fact that you're using their product over the other is successful selling. And I guess loyalty, sure. Um, but isn't I guess the point of advertising, right, to a certain extent, is to sort of generate that loyalty or continue that loyalty. And if they did a poor job advertising, that loyalty wouldn't be there. And no, I think I think advertising is to get you on the hook. I think experience is where the loyalty comes in. Okay. Well, they're, they're still providing a better experience for you, right, on the app. They, sure. they sold you on this experience and you've stayed for it. Um, I don't know. I have to... I'm going to use whichever one is cheaper at a given time, and I check both each time. Do you really? I'm, yeah. Wow. Wow, dedication. I, I use Lyft just for the simplicity of it. It's like buying peanut butter. I, I buy Jif every time. No, that's not true. I sometimes buy Skippy, but like um, it just it takes the thought out of it. I'm just like, all right, this this butter. brand, I know this brand is good. I'm taking this brand. I see. Lyft hasn't convinced me that the experience in a Lyft is any better than the experience of an Uber, and so I have no loyalty whatsoever. All right, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, so your second question. Well, that let's go back to that because I think that was that was perhaps slightly more interesting. What's the point of what's the point of advertising if we're getting paid directly? Well, do we have to buy into the idea that companies are not going to pay an intermediary, but instead they're going to pay you to look at something? I think I the whole time I was reading things, this came up multiple times in the chapter, right? This kind of going through the person directly. Um, was it was it whether it was advertising or the person posting advertisements to their pin, future Pinterest account, right? Ever whatever, and making money that way. And and I think. What came to mind is I think with blockchain that might actually be possible, right? So I, I don't think that's kind of the point of a lot of these blockchains, right? Is or at least with Ethereum, right? And you have these smart contracts that trigger when you do something, right? And you kind of embed that in the code, the code of something. Um, so suppose you have some smart contract that with some company or all the companies that say when you post my advertisement and it gets views, clicked on, right? you get a certain amount of money each time directly from the blockchain. And I don't know how exactly that the code of that works, but I believe that's sort of the 
the concept behind these smart contracts? But, is it just it does this automatically? Where does that money come from? Does it come from it, the it company? Comes from or the does company it come from, for sure. Is it generated through blockchain? No, it comes. I mean, the company, the the smart contract would charge the company, right? It would take some small amount of Ethereum, right, like point oh 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 one f, and okay. and transfer it to the bank account of the person who you know generated these clicks. Okay, so what if? But we say company, and I immediately think a large corporation or business. But I feel like this can work at a much more intimate scale, and it can kind of lose the stigma of ad- advertising. Advertising. Oh, for sure, for sure. Because I think, like, as as opposed to the idea of advertising, I, I guess I am. But I think, I think the way that we should probably think about this is sort of like a personal brand, where it allows you to insert yourself into areas that um, you normally wouldn't be able to or you wouldn't know to or you wouldn't have the access to or whatever. But if, if you're an individual freelancer or whatever, like your ad just sort of shows up somewhere. Yeah, but, no, yeah, that'd be awesome. I think right, maybe you could tie this even to like Instagram, you know, or maybe the next version of Instagram is this decentralized thing that doesn't go through Facebook. But... Uh, yeah, could you do that? And, and those posters, pictures that become your brand, get paid. You get paid through. That'd be cool. Or you pay someone to host it. Or you pay someone to host it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, well, I think someone's gonna make a lot of money setting up this personal advertisement. Well, thing. yeah. Well, the point, sort of the point of, and this is probably a completely different conversation that we shouldn't go down. But the point of um, these blockchain, uh, like Ethereum apps. They're like D apps, decentralized apps, and I think they're all supposed to be open source. So I'm like wondering how the platform itself or the coders themselves make money. Like they don't I don't think they actually make money through the code. I feel like they make money through taking advantage of the code, just like a normal customer. I don't know. I think that's something to research. So they they write the code, they know the code best, so they know where the exploitations are in order to actually build a real business. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, so like it's, the foam if it's, or whatever. Right. If it's open source, I don't know how you make money off of it. Um, but I think that's a discussion for another time. Um, yeah, I was actually going to transition this back to our uh, our intro sequence, right? Human focused futures, um, because yeah. I think the uh, the uh, this idea of small businesses you talked about and and kind of destigmatizing advertising, I think that's a really good point, right? Because you talked about in this chapter the. What are they? The seven, uh, yeah, the yeah, seven yeah, forms of filtering, down. right? And it's like this is sort of this friends, like is that how you leverage friends, right? As as sort of a money making, like friends kind of leverage each other and help each other out in terms of making yeah, money so and influencing I'll, I'll each other. Quick. So there's there's seven different types of filters that Kelly describes that exist right now and suggests um, without going into any detail. I think. Um, as you know that there's in the future there's infinite you know there's a, numerous more different types of filters that could exist <clears throat> but without you know he, I don't think he really needed you know these these are probably fairly comprehensive and you can kind of squeeze whatever is going to happen into it maybe not we'll see I'm going to find my words on that one yeah but, <clears throat> but you know gatekeepers intermediates so gatekeepers are authorities parents priests teachers um, intermediates are like book publishers, music labels, movie studios. They they curate what gets produced or what what sees production, I guess. Uh, curators, so like retail stores, museums, public libraries, any person online, really. I think you could throw under that list, like yeah. any Instagram or Pinterest page or something. Yeah, yeah. Brands, so something that represents a a a for profit business or Something that's for profit, I guess, a company. I guess, I guess not every brand has to be for profit, but yeah. Uh, governments, uh, taboos are prohibited. Hate speech or criticism of leader, uh, leaders or, or of religion is removed. Uh, cultural environment, which is pretty interesting. Uh, you know, children are fed different messages, different content, different choices depending on the expectation of school, family, and society around them. Our friends, so peers have great sway over our choices. And then by ourselves, uh, we make choices based on our own preferences, by our own judgment, 
Uh, and then he says traditionally that's the rarest filter, actually. Which I think is... <laughs> as much is, as we are into self-identity. Which is so yeah. interesting that he says that's the rarest one. So interesting. Um, uh, so okay. yeah, you were talking about the friends. Yeah, I, it, it's uh, something that we have brought up a few... T- well, okay, so this filters thing is something we've brought up a few times in terms of content curation and making sure you don't have this sort of inertia of personality or inertia of identity that keeps rolling. And I thought he did a really good job of maybe figuring out how to how to get away with that in terms of like he didn't go into he didn't go into any detail but he talked about like weighting thing like more recent events differently than past events and, and talk yeah. about weighting what your friends have done recently um but the one thing he kept coming back to throughout all these examples is talked about sort of this algorithm version and then the friends version and he, he really sort of hit upon this friends thing i don't know if that's because it was low-hanging fruit, or if because maybe it's, it just makes the most sense that we really balance out between computer algorithms, kind of saying this is what society at large has really enjoyed based on what you've enjoyed in the past, and this is also what your friends are talking about and your friends are watching, and we're going to weight those differently. Um, yeah. But I think you could really tie that in with this advertising thing and say this is what your friends are looking at or this is what your friends are buying, or your friends are like, hey, this is what I bought today. And you're going to look at that and be like, well, that's cool. You bought that. I think that looks great. You know, I might buy something similar. Yeah, and we do that naturally. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah we do that naturally. It's like the group of people we hang out with. Um, so, yeah, that could maybe really help out these little businesses or really kind of, you know, because everyone to a certain extent is an influencer, right? It's just... It's hard right now to get like 4,000, 10,000 Instagram likes unless you're kind of famous or you're hot, right? Or you put your face into bread. <laughs> or you put your face into bread. Or you do something extremely niche like that. Um, yeah. Right? Like we're getting not that many listeners to this podcast, unfortunately, but like, you know, we're not famous yet. We're not we're not bread facers. We're not bread. <laughs> so hopefully hopefully we'll find a niche or something. But you know it's it's this idea that even the smallest of persons can become influencers and uh, kind of really I don't know maybe do do you feel needed or something because of that? Um, but you're also helping the local businesses out. I don't. It's kind of cool. Well, there's I mean he went in decent amount of detail talking about how Google will take an advertisement, you know, as small as it may be for an organization, um, but, you know, someone's paying them to advertise, but they'll take that advertisement and then distribute it to the most optimal place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because the more clicks they get, the more money they get, and, you know, it's better for the company that's advertising as well. Right. Um, but, you know, it looks, they, they sort of go through, and he uses the example of, um, like, a softball blog, and um, a company that's advertising, you know, baseball mitts, yep. or baseball mitts, whatever, you know, and and Google will actively link these things together as it builds these contextual relationships between um, uh, the the web page that someone's looking at, uh, the company that it's advertising for, and then and then the person that's looking at that web page and the history that they bring with them. Um, which I think is a really, 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 really interesting correlation when you start talking about space and environments. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, if we talk about digital environments, you know, so the, so you have your physical environment that's sort of designed by an architect or it's designed by someone, right? But you have this additional overlay on it, whether it's digital or whatever, but it's, you know, it's designed from, by someone else. It's maybe profitized in some way. Um, and you know, maybe that stands in for Google, I guess here, if we sort of work with this and then, and then you have the person that's actually experiencing it, that, that overlay is really geared towards them and personalizing their feel of a space. Um, so it's not necessarily advertisement, but it creates this level of personalization that in the digital realm, in terms of internet usage, it, it sort of, it sort of comes across as a personalization. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, because he, he really didn't differentiate so much between filters and personalization. And, and maybe that's 
maybe it's true there's no real difference between the, as soon as you start filtering things you become more personalized maybe that's just kind of how it is um, well you have to question whether or not you have the right filters i guess yeah to, to meet your personality or identity right yeah but, but I, okay go ahead yeah i think i think when we talk about empathic futures labs the companies that are going to be doing these really crazy things in, in terms of integration of environments I don't think the same comp- I don't know if the same company that builds the physical space is also going to be doing the pseudo digital interactive overlay. It almost based on like using that as an analogy, like the Google AdSense as an analogy, it it feels like it should be a different company. I don't know. But I don't know. No, I, I I see what you're saying, but so one thing that came up to me while I was reading this uh, that I thought was really interesting cuz I've been thinking for a while and I feel like we've discussed it a few times this idea of like how do you how do you make smart homes and how do you come up with this sort of this sort of collection of smart home environments or atmospheres that say like you know we want this temperature to be colder and the rooms to be blue or warmer and the room to be red and smell different you know so like so suppose you 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 have this thing right and you're sort of filtering through this and you say i like you know i'm more attracted to warmer colors or cooler colors whatever and you're, you're personalizing it that way um, but I think you could start to say, well, one company has this sort of very minimal option where you're just designing the environment, and then you can sort of step up from there and say, okay, we're going to build you an installation, right? It could be like an Instagram post and say, you like our you like our blue plus water smelling space, you know, your blue space that smells like rain. Well, why don't you try this installation we have that that will take it to the next level, right? And and it becomes like this actual physical intervention that someone is building on top of their digital and digital overlay. Hmm. Like, does that make it... It sort of, in some ways, changes the architect or designer-client relationship because you have these different levels of Maybe that's a good thing. If, if the architect works for a larger company that distributes their work, sort of like a publisher, the writer... No? I don't know. I don't know, keep going. It's, it's, it's so, a different so, thing. It's sort of like how a writer writes and then they have a publisher that distributes the work. What you're suggesting is there's a cohort of architects that work for what we'll call a technology company, okay? That that work is then distributed en, en masse. Um, so you collect these people and then distribute the work in mass, so that you can do this sort of hyper-personalization um, that normally you can't do in architecture, but you can do it because uh, because you have the you have the quantities in order to in, to, yeah. in order to pull these things off. Yeah. Well, yeah. You get the smaller chunks of it start to start to pay for the bigger chunks of it uh, in a way. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's the architect in me that sort of wants our profession to exceed. But when you said it's an architect working for a tech company, that really sort of threw me off. I'm like. Why isn't it the well, other way around, right? Maybe. I want to say, like, architect, tech. Yeah, architect, well, I mean, you think about company. every like, tech company. It's not a tech company. It's, it's Facebook's a social networking company. Google right. is a search company, or you know, Uber is a transportation sort of the, company, right? In the motif of internet company, I guess, it, right. it allows you to aggregate users yeah. in a really profound way, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. Well, I think what's really interesting about that, right, is, um, shoot, sort of lost my train of thought. But so you had described it sort of in this way that, like, you have a bunch of architects designing these little things um, for people, and it's sort of these smaller interventions. Um, shoot, where am I going with this? I kind of forgot. Sounds like Etsy, like large-scale Etsy. Yeah, but I think I think maybe it starts to differentiate between. Um, starts to differentiate between amateurs and professionals maybe in this kind of weird way where right now it's this clear distinction almost where you have an architecture firm and an amateur uh, and, and you can really tell, right, because one person's licensed or one person where it's for a firm that's licensed. I'm not licensed, right. but, you know, the people I work for are licensed and they stamp the drawings. Well, but like every other industry, as technology drives costs down to zero or commoditizes things or starts to automate the process of construction drawings or you know you, you're able to build 3d models that can just be built off of immediately right it's like 
the difference between expert and amateur maybe shrinks down to to a lower portion of where it was before, right? Like we're not radio hosts, but we have this podcast. It's right. the difference is 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 I mean, the, it's much more subtle. The the thing the problem with architecture is like there could be really great work out there, but you can't. It it takes so long to do something that you know, it, and it's hard to distribute. Whereas you know, I'm sure every architect would love to build things quickly, and you know, give them the capacity to do that, and you know. Maybe I'm I'm sure there's a lot that really would just rather be into like the hyper specific site specific site specific stuff, but at the same time, like it could, it could really become this productized thing. I think and yeah, and because you have so many architects that out there that just sort of do this installation work where it's about manipulation of the experience of the space, which is probably what I'm most interested in right now personally. Yeah. But. Right, and and I think okay. So think about think about this. So suppose that you get someone hooked on this app, right? It's this marketplace, this aggregator of of environmental experiences, for lack of a better term, right? And I, I kind of like that. And 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 they 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 start really small, and, and we could call it Enviro. Enviro, and they, they okay. So they start really slow, right? And and it's just. When you start off, it's you have an enviro for like for you know base level. You have your smart lights because probably they're going to be a lot more ubiquitous, and you have your smart thermostat. Yeah, you, and you start with you start your with basic stuff. The physical objects people already have. Right, and then suppose that you have this sort of plus version or this this personal plus version. This this I don't know what you'd call it. It's like the stuff before the enterprise. So it's like enviro home or you know premium, um, and 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 they send you all these things. Like they send you a kit, right? It's like the kit of all the smart stuff that you're gonna need, and it's kind of like this step up. And then you have these like power users or your enterprise users. Like, do they get like actual custom architectural services on top of that, right? That say well, like we're so, actually yes, gonna build this space. The contract for you. probably happens with the company, though. It doesn't happen like those people have a contract with Enviro, right? Yeah, and yeah. then Enviro make you know produces. Right, but it, like at the free version, you're just producing lights and sounds and smell, or you're, maybe you're producing lights and temperatures and maybe some sure. smells. And then at the premium version, you have this sort of really integrated whole, but you're never getting into this like built thing. And then maybe at the enterprise version or the home power version, home power user version, like you can actually have this thing that kind of laser measures your house, and they can ship you stuff, and like you can yeah. actually make a physical environment, or they will build you a physical environment to match something much more professional and you have this sort of step up that sort of leads you through this idea that like these things matter i don't know if that sounds like you could be on to something i think it'd be really cool to do right i don't think we're there yet right we need you need to be these smart lights in order for this to work have to be way more ubiquitous than they are now because it's completely worthless to anyone who doesn't have smart lights at the very least yeah we're probably what 10 years away from this being realistic I don't know. We're probably yeah, maybe not ten, but we're at least probably a few years away, right? Maybe maybe as as light bulbs start to phase out, people will phase in smart lights slowly. Uh, and and maybe as the price of those goes down, people will bring them in slowly. But yeah, no, we're so it's a, it's a so what we're suggesting is a filtered marketplace for architectural for environmental experience. It's a net, yeah, it's Netflix. It's, yeah. it's, <laughs> uh, face? No, no, no. About Facebook. It's, I think it's Netflix or Spotify, but for environment. Well, I mean that's. I mean that sounds perfectly reasonable. Have we strayed too far from our topic? No. I, well, you know, you're filtering these things, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, but he never differentiates between filtering and, and personalization. So well, what do you mean? Can you explain he, that a little bit more? It seems like every, need a cheese cracker. It seems like everything he talks about could be described as personalization, right? Um, I don't. I don't remember. He talked about the home. His his. In the future, I'm gonna wake up every day and I'm gonna have this pill, right? And it's gonna just tell me what medicines I need that day and mix it for me. I'm gonna pop the pill the next, and then my my wearables are gonna okay. take that information, and I'm gonna go to the next day and I'm gonna do that, and right. I have this okay. universal so, you, so, right? And that filters information. It's all right. Like, but he does he does make the distinction because he talks about. How at some point, if you get too rigorous with your filtering, that 
it becomes as you know as we've talked about before like this echo chamber yeah where it's, where it's all just the same thing and i think that's i think that's the pitfall of too much personalization but but that he doesn't differentiate between filtering and personalization he just says there's a point where it's too far and i think that's okay i don't necessarily think you know if you filter enough it's personalizing the information i don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing that they're very similar if not pretty much the same in this this context well, you filter based upon your personality, right? Right, so the act and of filtering. We're assuming, we're assuming, I think maybe what he does is he assumes that that filter isn't going to only come from your personality, only yeah. from you. But the that act... filter comes from other influences well, as well, right. so it's not necessarily personalization. Well, the act of filtering in general is a sort of a personalization, right? Yeah, but it doesn't have to be filtered based upon your preference. What else would be filtered? Well, yeah, okay, you're right. It could, he has the government stuff. But a lot of the information he used was sort of filtering as an act of personalizing everything. Well, I think he's really, I mean, this is a trend that follows with the book. He's really into this idea of things being built just for you and about you and to fit you. Wait, I which, mean, is it him is into this idea or is it kind of we are into this idea? I mean, he talks about that a lot. Yeah, but, yeah, okay. I mean, I think we are also into that idea. Uh, not so we, us two. We as a society. Oh, oh, okay. Um, I think both. Well, maybe he's not as much. Maybe he's more cynical than it comes across, but he's very. he seems very optimistic in this book throughout. Uh, yeah, he kind of has um, to be. But so I think we I as a society. I don't know if he's that critical of you know, this over-personalization too much. He, he does talk about it a little bit, but... I mean, we're already sort of running into that with our political system. And, yeah. And education system and sort of everything, yeah. right? You could argue that architecture in a certain way is overfitted. What do you mean? Based on, you know, Pinterest and ArcDaily and DZine and all these things, like kind of reinforcing what is good. You know, it's a similar dialogue. It's the same dialogue over and over again to a certain extent. Um, sort of overfitting that aesthetic. So the white box with some wood trim or color trim or an accent wall, you know. So you're saying like the aesthetic is filtered to the point that it's just ubiquitous and boring. No, I mean people still like it, but yeah, kind of. I don't know. Nothing's ever not been done, right? So I don't think there's anything really there. So I mean, we've had this cover. I think we've had this conversation before. I don't know if we've had it on the podcast about how about using these sources these filters in order to design yeah. using it as a design tool really uh-huh. um, something that you basically just draw from without having the context for why it exists in the first place which these filters don't really give you the context they yeah. just tell you what the image looks like right 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 and then you end up with these yeah yeah you, you end up with white buildings everywhere so, I mean, that's that's a good case of where the filter is filtering based on a certain criteria, but that criteria doesn't really make sense for what it ends up being used for. Right, it's sort of overfitting the aesthetic towards everything. You know, oh, here's a great example of a white building in, the, in, in this context, you know, downtown Chicago. And then you kind of fit that into, I don't know, rural, rural Wisconsin or rural Pennsylvania, I, I, you know, and sure, it looks nice. It does. You know, as an architect, I, I kind of appreciate that aesthetic. But um, yeah. Well, I, I guess I was getting at is there's, I mean, like how that filter has changed the way things are done, and how it may just be the wrong filter. Like it's not it's not filtering things the right way necessarily. So we, you know, how do we critique our filters? Yeah. How do we how do we provide feedback for what they're doing? Yeah. Well, I think you just said, I don't know, right? Well, I mean, you look back on history and you see like that Robin, Robert Venturi, Rob, is it Robert Venturi? Yeah. With his the learning from Las Vegas theory, right? That kind of broke that filter. Or it helped kind of knock a hole in that high modern thing, right? So does it just come down to manifestos that do that? 
I, I don't know. Do we have any manifestos these days? I don't know. It's almost like it's sort of pragmatism or parametricism or sort of this research manifesto. I think because the yeah, thing that's the knocking it on the door. I think the general trend right now is kind of rationalism. Yeah, it's sort of, that's what's sort of knocking on the door of this. If it hasn't already kind of come through the door. Well, I mean, it's I not think here the yet. Personalization thing works so well with rationalism. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Because it's like, well, why wouldn't we do things that people are going to enjoy most and spend the most time and attention and money on? Right. That just makes sense. Right. Right. And then you kind of just, the only question is how much, how do you know there's too much of a good thing, right? That you've sort of already asked that question. Yeah. And I, I don't know if we have an answer to that yet. We kind of don't. We don't have an answer to that. <laughs> I think it's safe to say. Well, I mean, you, maybe you just, you just kind of have to keep, like, start testing it. So that inertia thing that we talked about, right? Yeah. It's like, at what, uh, so I have a thousand decisions that I lean a certain way on. And I've made that decision a thousand times. I get up. I like, I enjoy getting out of bed. No, let's, I enjoy buying Oreos at Walmart. Okay. But, and I've done that a thousand times, which is a lot of Oreos, I'll admit. <laughs> but let's say, how do I, how do I get my app or whatever to stop telling me to buy Oreos at Walmart after I've done it a thousand times for a thousand weeks straight? Right, and you kind of just like hard cap it, right? And just put a hard rule on that and say, yeah, I'm done. I'm, I'm done. I don't. But it's kind of hard. There, yeah. So I guess you know my question is if. If instead I don't want to buy Oreos, I want to buy something else. Like, do is there a way that I guess there would just have to be a way in which I can, um, you know, give that uh, differentiation. But you know, I don't want you don't want that to be something that's cumbersome. Right. Well, I think it's funny that you went straight to Oreos because even it, it, you know we're kind of comparing. I think a really good comparison to this is nutrition, right? Yeah. Right, you want to stay healthy in terms of your culture, in terms of your mentality, in terms of your whatever, whatever you're learning. So, is it is it come down to so much as I don't, I don't want to say we quantify everything, but there's got to be a distinction somewhere between health and healthy and not healthy that we can maybe hit, yeah. kind of like we have with food. I don't know what that is. Yeah, but you hear like the food chart changes every every two years at this point it's like probably fine <laughs> it's probably fine that it's a living document I, maybe I think everything at this point needs to be a living document right no I don't disagree but the I don't know if we have even developed really good standards yet <laughs> you know? well nutrition's so hard to do yeah because it's, it's you're, you're moving the goalposts everyone's moving the goalposts all the time even for themselves like falsely reporting what they have and yeah, I'm sure I'd be guilty of that too. Um, Do you okay. have any more filtering stuff? Yeah. So okay. So <laughs> the the end of that chapter, I was sort of excited to read and also disappointed to read uh, because it felt like it was sort of stealing some of the thunder that I was trying to produce for this clog submission on AI. Um, but I know oh, I've read so, this. Yeah, go into this. I, I know I've read this chapter before, so I wonder if that was sort of like dormantly laying in the back of my head before the clog submission or maybe I'd like kind of circled back to it and then read this and I was like well okay it's kind of the same thing but it was really interesting um what did they talk about um so kind of talked about this idea that that we had brought up earlier where as as you start to commoditize everything as technology makes the production and distribution of things easier prices tend towards zero um, and then in this world where prices tend towards zero, human experience is sort of the only thing that can't really be commoditized because if you do it right, it's unique every time um, to a certain extent. Even if it's the same experience, you can kind of it's kind of a unique experience. You're doing it with different people or and you're doing it the second or third time even is different because right. you're comparing and, it with the old times, right? It's yeah, always I mean, that somewhat can be, different. And your your memory's faulty and you know, and that right. can come down it can come down to like faulty memory, it can come down to, you know, if you watch Westworld, like these micro right. um, these micro adjustments that people do with their face or their expressions or whatever right. that, you know, give different cues. 
Right, and you're kind of seeing things differently every time, right? His human experience is completely different every time, and he's like... Is it based um, on memory? Right, and he's like, humans humans excel at producing and consuming human experience. I'm like, that's, that's sort of a no-duh, but it's also sort of this, well, you know, it's one of those things you're not going to think about that way until you say it. Um, right. Right, so he's like, well, we'll use, quote-unquote, we'll use technology to produce commodities, and we'll make experiences to avoid being a commodity ourselves. So great, I thought that was a great quote. Um, as an aside, it kind of brought up that SciArc program on design fiction. I was like, well, if we're going to be experiencing everything, right, does that make that program much more valuable than it is now? It probably does, right? Um, yeah, I certainly think so. So, okay, so what that brought us to, what brought him at the end of the chapter was, um, here's another good quote, at the heart at, at the heart, the modern economy runs on distinction and the power of differences. And it's sort of based on filtering and based on, like, personalizing, right? That's what's creating this distinction. Right. So he's basically saying, like, as, if you make, if you kind of make it personalized everything or you rely on this distinction to such a point, it's sort of, he's, he's basi- he basically said, almost exactly said, explicitly said that, we, should, we are thinking about automation the wrong way. We're thinking about automation as making us less human. It's making us more machine-like. But in a certain extent, if you think about it, all this personalization, all this like creating these distinct experiences and human experiences for ourselves is making us more human because it's making us think more about who we are or pointing out to us more about who we are, right? Right, and then we actively have to pursue what are these more human experiences. Yeah, we have to actively pursue, like, who are we? What are we? Yeah. Um, and I think that's so fascinating about this AI thing. And, you know, I, I, I don't know, I wrote this down somewhere, but it's like, it, it makes, it sort of answers the question of who are we, but it also kind of makes us ask the question even more rigorously of who are we? Because it's like, at the same time, it points out these distinctions between us. It makes us question, like, where do these come from? What do these mean? Why do we have these distinctions? Why do we right. think this way? I guess an interesting thought came into my head as you were saying that. And I was going to say, like, we aren't just burger flippers, right? Right. But there is a, a really interesting experience associated with flipping burgers and throwing fries in a frying, in frying oil. Right. Some people really so, just identify with cooking and making things taste good for other people. And then that's right. fine. That's kind of their purpose in life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, I've worked at Culver's, and I, w- I was going to say that thing about flipping burgers, but then at the same time, I'm like, I actually enjoy the experience of being back in that kitchen and, like, you know, kicking the can and, you know, you know just messing around and doing whatever, uh, and, you know, chucking, chucking a pork tenderloin into the frying pan, into the frying basket. <laughs> you know, that's, there's something about that that, you know, a robot's not going to throw the... F- the pork tenderloin into the frying basket. Yeah, it's going to place it nicely, and it's going to right. work. <laughs> and it's an experience, right? I guess, yeah. So, like, as as we automate these jobs, the only people who are going to have these jobs are the people who really want them and care to get good at them and share these with share these skills with people around them. So, and should education gonna... just be focused on learning what it is that your context and background and history have set you up to be good at, and what you're naturally good at? I guess. I don't know. It's so hard to say what you're naturally good at, though, if you've never experienced it. I mean, that's what—that's the question we're asking right here, though. Really. I mean, the yeah, the question I think we're asking, yeah, to a certain extent. But the question we're also asking is, how do we train people to sort of identify and empathize with people so that they can make these awesome experiences? Yeah, but you don't know what things you want to do and how you want to influence. Well, how, yeah, born. Right, so you have to have the experiences to sort of know what you're going to influence people to do, right? Yeah. So, so we got to have people now that start doing stuff. That, yeah. yeah. Right. You have to you have to make people do stuff, and then they'll decide if they enjoy it or not. But how do you make yeah. people do stuff? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe people like doing stuff. I think people do I, like doing I, stuff. I, I, you know, I like making things. Yeah. That's part of the reason why I do what I do. Yeah. Yes. People like to do stuff. People like to feel like they're doing useful things too. Yeah. You have an active contribution to society. Yeah. And then and then you maybe you use these filters to sort of 
whittle down what that active contribution is. But also optimize the distribution of it. Yeah, yeah, optimize the distribution of it. That That's key, Yeah. probably. Optimize, like, it allows you to optimize your impact. Right, you want, you want the distribution costs to, to near zero as well. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, I, I guess my closing thought is... Um, oh, I think... I, Okay, I don't. I kind of lost that train of thought. What? Uh, I was going to say something about kind of wrapping that idea up in terms of, you know, we are. What? How are we personalizing this, or like, how we're asking these questions of becoming more human, right? Um, it's like it's like finding a guide towards that, or like how, asking the right questions. I don't. I don't know. I had I had like a very like baby thought and then it just sort of died so i have a little bit of a thought and maybe it'll help it okay. might not okay um so one of the things he talks about is he ma- he makes this argument about a personalized medical pill that you take each day that you know it augments each day to meet your needs for whatever that day is going to be you know whether it's vitamin supplements it's sort of all pack pack packaged up in one little thing yeah and that that got me thinking a little bit um, that, you know, who, who sort of devised the metrics, you know, that, and when we're talking about health, like who, who determines exactly, um, how much we're supposed to have or my, I, the way I see this is like the amount of supplements that we're ingesting is increasing. Yeah. Um, and with that, we have to increase like we always talk about mass customization and personalization, but I think like a counterpoint to that is, you know, as as things become more varied and complex, we need even more standards along with that. Yeah. Um, and so. Or even things, less standards. What? Or even less standards. And well, more, you have to more variable standards. It, or, yeah, it just sort of it's on a scale or a spectrum. Different but it's still standards. Standard in a way, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Standard um, range or something like that. Yeah, so I think as as these things and environments and everything media that we interact with becomes more and more complex, the the metrics I guess that we apply to it need to become need to come up under scrutiny just as much as um, the way in which we personalize these things. I think. Yeah. Um, well, that sort of comes back to this idea of what is it like? What does it mean to be a human being? Like, what are these? metrics that that sort of define us or right what makes us healthy right. what is a healthy person right and then what what is augmented to you yeah yeah what is so healthy setting these you? baselines and then yeah so like you know at some point do we just is there like this this program so like i have the human scale I, I'm showing it on my Skype camera right now, which isn't very helpful to anyone listening. But <laughs> I have these human scale um, documents. You know, there's stuff for like people that are in wheelchairs. You know, people that just sit. It sort of gives like these standards and things that you can kind of work with. And it's this great document that was produced in like the '60s or the '70s or something. But you know, do we need to have like a human scale for? You know, do we need to redevelop this this baseline for the way in which people experience the world? And um, you know, we have to start from somewhere. And I think like we can do personalization, but I think we you also have to have the metric that goes with that. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you know, what if you what if you say that it, at a certain extent, right? If everything goes to zero and machines sort of take over more or less everything. The only and and we we subscribe to this idea that the only thing left is human experience, right? We're going to be creating content and content meaning experiences at such an extraordinary rate that like the ability to niche to make a niche something or other is just you know it's through the roof. Everything to a certain extent is going to be niche. So what's the point of standards if everything's niche, right? It's just kind of linking well, the I right mean, people I mean, to the like right things. I mean, like baseline human, like this baseline human model. Yeah, I think that probably only really matters for things that are like, what does it mean to be healthy, right? Yeah, I think, you know, there's some sort of 
heart rate that's too high or some sort of cholesterol level that's too high but i don't think i don't know if there's any need if everything is sort of this niche idea what's the point of having a baseline everything's niche but should everything be niche if every if you're running an economy based on distinction of experiences everything's kind of going to be niche except i mean there's always going to be a median right it's kind of like pop culture is the median but uh i don't know does that mean like Taylor Swift is like the baseline or like Justin Bieber is the baseline or you know they're I don't know how you I think I would put them below the baseline <laughs> yeah but you know I there are so I see many what you're saying right how do you baseline that it's 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 an experience well, okay okay so there's so there's like this baseline thing that's made and he talks about this in another point in the book so like there's this thing that's made and there's this remixing and augmenting that happens on top of that that gets it personal that makes it personalized to you and i think when we were talking about the way in which architectural spaces work i think that was one of the things i was really thinking about when we talked about that and so there's like this baseline standard for how things work and then there's ways in which that's manipulated to meet you right it's sort of like niche to more niche yeah i don't know either way We've probably talked this into the ground. Probably. That's probably a good place to stop. Yeah. All right. So, uh, next time on Empathic Futures Labs, yeah. well, we'll be talking to you about something. Yeah. Any takeaways? Uh, takeaways? Kevin Kelly is really optimistic about the future, and I can get on board with that. Takeaways, yeah. we, we got a million a billion dollar idea that we came up with this in this episode. Yeah, we'll see where that goes. That's a takeaway. That's a takeaway. Yeah. I my I, I just love these quotes at the end. Those are my takeaways. We'll use technology to produce commodities and we'll make experiences to avoid becoming a commodity ourselves. Like that's so great. Yeah, the standards are the commodities. Like what are that's that's sort yeah. of the baseline. Yeah. yeah. Whatever the commodities are. Right. But yeah. Okay. That's fair. That's but yeah, the commodities that's, that's are so argument. the commodities become so niche at a certain point, right? Like who how many people frequent the mechanical keyboard Reddit like I do, right? It's a commodity, but it's so niche. Um, and then you personalize on top of that. Yeah. Uh, and then at the heart the modern economy runs on distinction and the power of differences. Like that's huge. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Well, I have to go to the bathroom. All right, it's a good time to stop then. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone, and we hope you tune in next time.